You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So neonatal dermatology, you're right, sometimes the littlest patients make us feel the most anxiety. So neonatal um, skin just deserves special consideration. It's thinner, it's more fragile, and the body surface area to weight ratio is much higher in children. That increases their risk for um, absorption of topical medications, increases their risk for skin infections. And in particular, our little preemies, the preterm infants less than 32 weeks, their stratum corneum is not quite mature. They have more transepidermal water loss, putting their skin barriers at risk again for infection, dryness, um, and for electrolyte imbalances. So it's really important um, to consider those things. Um, Just a basic, basic neonatal skincare kind of 101. Whenever possible, I do think that immersion tub bathing is really important. I touched on this in our atopic talk, but I think that bathing practices vary a lot. And I think newborn um, moms might be nervous and might have been told a bunch of different things about how to bathe their baby. Don't bathe the baby, just sponge bathe. But really, in general, it is safe um, to bathe the baby right away um, from, from birth. And simple emollients can help protect that delicate skin And we talked about this in terms of eczema prevention, but just in general, um, especially in our preterm infants, a little bit of emollient goes a long way. Um, Sunflower seed oil is what's typically recommended um, and has been used in um, developing nations too, especially in their NICU to help prevent the skin barrier. And these oils might actually have a little antimicrobial properties too, making them even more um, effective. And then of course, just plain uh, petrolatum-based ointments such as Vaseline or Aquaphor, really helpful even right from birth. Okay, so audience response test questions, here we go. What is your diagnosis here? Is this irritant dermatitis, subderm? Could this be Langerhans cell histiocytosis, psoriasis, or tinea? Okay, so we're a little over the map here and the answer is coming up in the, in the pending slides and we're gonna go on to the next pretest. And that is, what's the diagnosis here? Is this scabies infestation? You can see like erythematous papules and pustules all in the diaper region and on the thighs. Bacterial infection, pustular melanosis. Is this candida? Could this be Langerhans cell histiocytosis? All right. So again, all over the map. This is kind of what I like to see because I feel like in the coming slides, we're all gonna learn a lot together. So, pretest three. This one day old has this postular eruption that's been kind of rapidly evolving. There's some hyperpigmentation there as well. What's your diagnosis here? Is this scabies infestation? Bacterial infection? Postular melanosis? Incontinentia pigmenti? or again, Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Loving the music. Okay, great. Next one, 
This eight-week-old presents with this evolving eruption. What's the most likely diagnosis for these papules and kind of eczematous appearing, scaly, crusted areas in the periaxillary area? Little kind of brownish, hyperpigmented dots. Okay. Last one before we kind of get into the, the rest of the talk. So this infant presents with this sort of linear vesiculopapular eruption. Um, what's the most likely complication here, guys? Okay, nice. So the answers will come at the end in our big reveal. But first, let's go into some common things that you all need to know and probably already do know a lot about, but we're gonna touch on erythema toxicum neonatorum, transient pustular melanosis, miliaria, and cephalic pustulosis subderm. And then we're gonna talk about a few cases like what not to miss in our neonates. So ETN has the most alarming name, but is really totally harmless. It's these little tiny urticarial papules or papulovesicles that come up within 24 to 48 hours of birth. Um, no treatments required. These typically go away and self-resolve in four to seven days. So here's another good example of those kind of erythematous wheels, urticarial, um, and these are sterile pustules. There's no bacteria in here, but if you did scrape one and look at it under the microscope, you might see it, it was rich in eosinophils. The distribution favors the face, the head and neck, the trunk, um, and the extremities. Palms and soles are almost never affected. That can be a helpful clue when you're looking at, at, at infants in the newborn period. Um, mostly this is on hair-bearing areas. And aside from the rash, the infant is otherwise totally healthy. What about its cousin, transient pustular melanosis? And this is characterized by the same type of erythematous or hyperpigmented papules and vesicles and small pustules. They're very fragile. These ones might have a little rim of scale surrounding them. And in contrast to erythema toxicum, if you scrape the um, infiltrate here, this is actually more of a neutrophilic um, predominant infiltrate in these little pustules. And so the same distribution really, less often on the palms and soles again, but mainly scattered throughout the body. It fades in one to two weeks and no treatment is necessary. It fails with that hyperpigmentation. And transient neonatal pustular melanosis is a little more common in patients with skin of color, um, but it is totally harmless and really doesn't need any treatment. Here's a nice uh, photo here showing you the morphology. You can get this on the hands and feet, but less commonly. Miliaria is a papulovesiculoeruption, eruption, and there are many types with many different names, but I think that miliaria rubra should be really the run on your radar and, because it's the most common. And this is the little tiny um, crystalline, kind of very fragile vesicle that you can see in babies um, that's due to heat, uh, overheating and retention and occlusion of sweat within the ecrine coils. This is a photo that I borrowed from one of our textbooks from Dr. Prost, but I think this highlights miliaria pustulosa really nicely. Um, most of the time you don't see a true pustule, you just see the little vesicles. 
So one helpful clue to the diagnosis of miliaria is that it's not quite follicular, usually. Um, these seem more randomly distributed, and they're associated with ecrine coils. Um, head and neck, again, most commonly affected, but definitely in those babies that are getting overheated or overbundled, the trunk and the central abdomen can be affected. So that's really the main, the main treatment, is just to kind of cool the baby down, um, no treatment required, just gentle skin cares. I've spoken a lot already about this form of baby acne or cephalic pustulosis, so I won't belabor this, but this usually shows up around two to three weeks of age, um, has a facial predominance, a little bit of scaling, and again, maybe the first sign of skin barrier dysfunction due to the way that your, um, the baby's reacting to malassezia species on the skin. And usually it's easily treated with a little ketoconazole um, cream or even nothing, just moisturizers. So a couple other nice um, clinical examples of what you'd be looking at there. Um, in more severe cases, when it's more extensive, the babies look a little more red, they're a little urethrodermic, you might want to consider that this is an early presentation of what we call the red scaly baby or neonatal urethroderma. And so before three months of age, urethroderma is fairly rare, and since atopic dermatitis is mostly starting to present right around three months of age, early urethroderma is a cause for concern. And so in that differential, kind of keep these things in your mind. In the newborn, under three months of age, you want to be thinking about the possibility of staph scalded skin, if it's crusty, especially periorificially, and there is widespread urethroderma, early severe atopic dermatitis, um, psoriasis or other papulosquamous eruptions are in that differential, as are, and I'm highlighting this, some immunodeficiency syndromes. So some of the syndromes like severe combined immunodeficiency, DOC8, Wiscott-Aldrich, they can present very early with what seems like urethroderma, scaly skin, and early atopic dermatitis. So just keep that in mind. Okay, I'm not gonna go through this. If you haven't been on the AAD uh, website, they have a really great basic dermatology curriculum with both, which both Jim and I have worked on, and there's a really nice one on neonatal rashes. So I would encourage you to use that as a resource. It's free. Um, you can download a PowerPoint presentation, some nice tables, um, and it's really just kind of at your fingertips. Okay, let's go into some cases. What are we? don't want to miss. And I'm just going to warn you, these ones are a little tricky. This is a three-month-old with this facial eruption for about two to three weeks of age. She's otherwise healthy, gaining weight, doing fine. Family history is pretty much unremarkable, no atopic disease or vascular birthmarks. And mom is a really good historian. She denied any personal history, family history. This is just this kind of fixed erythematous, somewhat eczematous plaque all along the periorbital area and forehead. So when I saw this baby, I actually was pretty stumped. I thought, oh, this is kind of funny. Um, you know, it, could this be a port wine stain that's having secondary eczematous changes, which can be really commonly seen? Is this more sebderm? Um, you know, I'm always kind of got my radar up for nutritional deficiency or acrodermatitis. It didn't really look anything like that. So I said, you know, let's keep a close eye on this. I'm gonna, you know, send you home with a little bit of topical steroid, come back in two weeks. And when she did, Things were slightly improved, but it was still very mask life and over the periorbital area and cheeks. And then mom said, you know, she got a new rash over the weekend on the arms 
um, when we had her first kind of like foray into the sun. And then mom was questioned and she gave a new history of Raynaud's phenomenon. So here's a couple of photos of the kind of like violaceous to erythematous papules on the arm and this kind of fixed erythematous plaque on the face. So what's our diagnosis here? What am I thinking at this point? You can start the clock. Is this atopic dermatitis, neonatal lupus, an eczematous poor wine stain, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, or nutritional deficiency? Okay, great. I'm so glad. Oops, too much. Is that right? Yep, so you guys are absolutely right. This is neonatal lupus, and this really did stump me at first, but when we did labs, mom was SSA, SSB positive. Um, baby had SSA. Her EKG was thankfully negative. You know, if she had had heart block, that would have shown up earlier. And we did biopsy um, her arm, and that did show changes of vacuolar interface dermatitis consistent with cutaneous lupus. So this was a stumper for me, but it just is a jumping board to talk a little bit about neonatal lupus. So NLE occurs in the exposure of prenatal exposure to maternal antibodies, rho, LA, and U1RNP. Moms who are rho positive have about 25% chance of having a baby with neonatal lupus. And interestingly, a lot of the moms don't even know they have these antibodies. This is somewhat asymptomatic for them. Um, about 50% might have Raynaud's syndrome or Sjogren's syndrome, and it may be undiagnosed. 50% um, of babies who have NLE will have skin findings, so we're often the first place this presents, so it's important to have this on your differential. And they get what has been called raccoon eyes in the past, so that periorbital um, confluent involvement is, is really interesting. And then they sometimes get discoid lesions, erosions, ulcer ulcerations, and particularly in our patients of color, they get some dispigmentation here. Um, there's no increased risk in that baby for development of systemic lupus over time, but I think they are following um, a cohort of babies. Let's talk about the congenital heart block because that is the most life-threatening complication here. It's present in 2% of cases. Um, and interestingly, that risk increases if you have an affected sibling. So all mothers who have had a baby with NLE are high risk and should see um, maternal fetal medicine um, for their subsequent pregnancies. There are some papers that say that Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine may reduce the risk of cardiac NLE in treated moms. So there's some studies of this that are ongoing. Other associations with neonatal lupus include thrombocytopenia, rarely CNS anomalies um, with hydrocephalus. And over the years, I've gotten a little bit more adept at picking this up. Here's an example of um, NLE in one of our babies with type 4 skin. You can see the erythema, the hyperpigmentation, and some of these actually do look atrophic, and occasionally there will be scarring left from these. And another baby with more of like a hypopigmentation, but again, that periorbital distribution. Okay. Second case, this is an eight-week-old with a history of all of these linear vesicles and crested papules um, in the first few days of life. Um, it's very widespread, arms, trunk, abdomen, all affected in a similar way. So what's your diagnosis here? Diffuse epidermal nevus, like Jim has just taught us about. Segmental pigmentation disorder. Could this be congenital HSV? Okay. 
a little bit split here, but the answer is a D. This is a, a good example of incontinentia pigmenti. And so being that we were a little bit split on this, I think it'll be good to um, cover this in the next few slides. IP is an X-linked dominant um, genodermatosis that's lethal in males, and it's caused by mutations in Nemo gene. It can have extracutaneous manifestations that include eye, brain, and dental anomalies. And the classic skin changes take place in four different stages. Um, initially, right in the neonatal period, these linear lesions are vesicular. They then kind of become a little bit more crusted or hyperkeratotic and verrucous. Ultimately, they become hyper and then hypopigmented. And this is a nice example of that hyperpigmentation that is um, starting. So IP is something that we're often called to the NICU for, um, and there definitely is a role for ruling out serious infections, including congenital HSV, which is most often already done by our very um, strong NICU attendings. But when you see this pattern, there's very few other things that it can be. Occasionally, we will need to make a biopsy to you know, help with the diagnosis. Um, if you do a biopsy, the histologic finding is eosinophilic spongiosis, um, and that's pretty specific in this setting of linear vesicular eruption in a neonate. But you really want a prompt evaluation by ophthalmology. You want a prompt um, or anticipatory referral to neurology because as you indicated in the first one of the first questions on our pretest, it's seizure disorder that's the most likely neurologic complication here with incontinentia pigmenti. And then dentistry a little bit later on. Cutaneous um, involvement has most often been really just supportive care bathing, emollients, you know, preventing infection if the skin barrier is broken down. But I found actually that um, little, I've, I've found that topical calcineurin inhibitors can be really helpful. And when you think about the gene pathway here through um, NEMO, because that's the gene that's altered, and the fact that um, calcineurin inhibitors work to downregulate that um, NF-kappa-beta pathway, and we've seen some evidence that dilute bleach baths also um, downregulate that pathway. Uh, I actually start all of these IP kiddos on dilute bleach baths and topical tacrolimus, and I find they do really well, and we get to the hyperpigmented stage very, very quickly. So you can see just after two weeks. I don't know if that's natural history or not, but it seems very safe to do. So that's kind of what we've been doing in, uh, at the University of Minnesota to treat them. So that's IP, incontinentia pigmenti. All right, three. This is an eight-week-old, and this neonate presents to your clinic with these widespread, dull brown papules, crusted macules, periaxillary accentuation, irritable but non-toxic, and you can see these little kind of crusted papules, head and neck affected too. Nice close-up. All right, what is your next step here, guys? Are you gonna obtain a skin biopsy because you're sure this is LCH? I think you can see a theme here. We don't, <laughs> with the Langerhans cell histocytosis being in almost every choice. Um, do you get a skin scraping to rule out scabies? Vigorously rub a lesion because maybe this is cutaneous mastocytosis or urticaria pigmentosum. Treat with topical steroids or get a KOH to rule out fungal. Excellent. Over half of you got this. So this is infantile scabies infestation. It's a nice little mite. 
So scabies does occur in babies. Keep this on your radar. Um, it can occur anytime after four weeks of age if, you know, if, the, if the infection is present in other family members. So it can be seen in the neonatal period. And what's different about infantile scabies and neonatal in particular is that there is involvement of the head and neck. Classically in adult scabies, you don't see head and neck, but those little mites can go just about everywhere in that you know, immature skin barrier. The other thing is that there are more mites present on infants than adults because they're not yet adept at scratching these little mites away. Um, so they, they tend to do really well on neonatal skin. And so they often become more crusted and hyperkeratotic. Periumbilical areas, periaxillaria, um, and groin can be affected. So in terms of treatment, this is a question we often get in babies, what, what should we do? Can we safely use permethrin? And the answer is yes. In babies over two months of age, you can safely use permethrin. You need to use it on the face. The head and neck must be treated too, or it's not going to um, you know, resolve the infection. In younger infants, um, there are reports of using precipitated sulfur, um, and you would have to get that compounded at a compounding pharmacy. That's also really helpful um, for, for facial and for eyelashes if you um, are, are treating other things like pediculosis. But the precipitated sulfur is also an option and considered very safe even in very young infants. Um, I already mentioned you need to treat the head and neck and all close contacts, of course, and then you repeat that application in seven days keeping in mind that all of the bedding and the contacts and the stuffies and all the fomite control that needs to be done. Okay. So I thought I'd take a little time during this lecture to talk about diaper eruptions. I think neonatal lecture is a really good time to review this. Um, we got lots of questions about diaper care, including what's the best diaper? Um, what should we be using as a barrier paste? In general, the diaper technology has come a really long way, and we do have really effective superabsorbent diapers that wick moisture away really, really effectively. Despite this, though, the baby's skin is moist and occluded with the stool and the urine um, for long periods of time sometimes, and so a barrier paste to decrease that um, contact is really, really helpful. And we recommend mainly zinc oxide or petrolatum-based barrier paste. Um, when you put them on, we often tell our families, put them on thick like icing, like you're frosting that baby's little bottom. And certainly when you're changing the diaper, if it's not a completely soiled diaper with stool, it's okay to just wipe off and, and put more on. You don't need to aggressively clean down every single time. So changing diapers frequently, that's a no-brainer. Cleansing of the area. In general, the disposable wipes have, um, have been proven to be safe and, and, and effective. We prefer the alcohol and fragrance-free varietals. But you can also just as easily use warm, soapy water. Um, in some babies that have really erosive dermatitis where it might sting or burn to put on one of those wipes because invariably most of the pre-moistened wipes do contain preservatives or alcohols in order to keep them sterile in the pack. Um, that can sting and burn on open, irritated skin. So we'll have moms use little makeup cotton wipes and just kind of pre-moisten them, put them in a Ziploc bag. They can bring them with them wherever they go. So let's talk about diaper eruptions. What can go wrong in the diaper area? Well, you can certainly get irritant dermatitis of all varieties. So mild, moderate, severe, jaquettes is a, is a word that I didn't know till I was a pediatric dermatologist. And then pseudoverrucous papules. We'll talk a little bit about those. You can have psoriasis. And the diaper area is a really common first presenting sign of psoriasis in babies. You can have staph and strep infections um, in the perineum and then candidal infections. 
So this is pretty much what you would see for a very mild irritant diaper dermatitis, convex areas of the labia with a little bit of erythema and scaling. Um, Incidence is lower with the use of these superabsorbent diapers and higher, I would say, with cloth diapers. But it's still okay to, you know, use your cloth diapers if you're changing very frequently and applying a lot of paste. Um, everything can exacerbate an irritant dermatitis. You know, teething where there's increased secretions, the baby's swallowing more, therefore they're going to have more secretions. Diarrhea um, and infrequent diaper changes can predispose to this. So these ones would be more moderate to, serve, to severe. Pa um, these are two patients that I've taken care of over the years, and one of them has kind of that purple to dull brown nodule. Um, and that's really more of a kind of a granulomatous reaction to the chronic inflammation and has been called granuloma gluteali infantum and is a little bit more severe. In these cases, I do think a topical steroid making sure that there's no bacterial superinfection or just colonization is really important. And you know me, I'm a diehard bleach bath fan. I think there's a role for that here too. So consider that when the barrier is so disrupted, so irritated, staph just kind of makes its home once again. What about very severe cases of irritant dermatitis where it gets erosive? And that's when the, where this name Jaquette's dermatitis comes in. This is a more severe variant of irritant dermatitis. And you can often see these little kind of punctate erosions and it looks concerning. You might even think about HSV in, in babies that have this, but they often have these little islands of reepithelialization between the erosions. This is the special situation where there's a ton of secretions. So fecal incontinence, frequent stooling, diarrhea, um, iller infants, and infants in the NICU um, who are stooling a ton um, can present with jaquettes. And here's another example of a little baby in the NICU that we saw recently with, the, with jaquettes diaper dermatitis. The erosions are more confluent, but you can see those little islands in between, and then you kind of know um, your diagnosis is probably correct. So what do we do? Keeping the area dry is really important. So again, frequent diaper changes, thick, thick diaper paste, manage super infection, like the, you know, using dilute bleach baths or if you want to culture and make sure that there's nothing else co-infecting or co-colonizing there. And then a mid, maybe, or um, mild or mid-potency topical steroid ointment. I would always pick ointment here and not do creams. White creams on this open eroded skin is going to really be uncomfortable because they all have preservative and alcohol in them to keep them in cream formulation that's gonna really sting and be uncomfortable. So pick ointments. The zinc oxides in petrolatum are a good choice too. Those don't tend to sting or burn. Even though they're white, it's really the zinc that, that leads to the white color. And if they're in a petrolatum base, they seem to do well. Other barriers that are potentially helpful include the Cavalon um, brand cream or swab. I have found that to make a film that sometimes is a little bit more protective in these more erosive cases. Um, sucralfate, Maalox have all been reported to be helpful in the setting of Jaquette's um, diaper dermatitis, but they're a little harder to use, I would say. And this is an example of just three weeks after really intensive diaper care, daily dilute bleach baths, a little bit of the triamcinolone ointment, not unlike my eczema regimen that I, that's one of my favorites, but that idea of skin barrier repair, fighting infection, um, and, and kind of making sure the barrier is in place. Okay, so this three-year-old male has a history of Hirschsprung disease, and this chronic diaper rash, what's the diagnosis? Are these warts? Could this be genital HSV? Folliculitis? 
pseudobaruchus papules, or is this a lymphatic malformation like Jim showed us this morning? Great, you guys almost all got this. This is an example of what we call pseudoverrucous papules, and it's not uncommon in the diaper area, usually in more ill children that have GI or GU issues and are constantly having soiling of, of the area. Um, it's a very distinctive reaction resulting in these kind of little skin-colored to tan papules. They're very wart-like. Um, and they tend to involve all around the perineum and the suprapubic area, and they're often grouped. So children at risk for developing this, obviously those that are not very good with their stooling, um, encoparesis, Hirschsprungs, and those who need urostomy or urinary care, such as those with spina bifida. And this can mimic things and mimic child abuse, so it's something to keep on your radar, too, because I do think these look very wart or condyloma-like, and I can see how people can be led down that path. Also, the treatment is pretty challenging because these children have chronic illnesses and require a lot of diapering. And so removal um, of inciting factors, trying to thicken the stool, um, all of that has been reported um, to be helpful, but it is kind of a chronic and difficult thing to treat. So with irritant dermatitis, the principle of care, you can't use too much barrier ointment. Keep the area dry and free from infection. Um, you want to make sure that you're ruling out all of that colonization that can occur and maybe impairing the skin barrier. Um, repair gentle soaps. In the more erosive diaper dermatitis, I will gen generally avoid pre-moistened wipes. Changing the diaper frequently, a little bit of topical steroid can go a long way. And then you really want to avoid what I call polypharmacy of the diaper area. There's so many white creams available out there, and moms have tried everything from butt paste to um, Lotrimin over the counter, and there's so much of that going on, and um, it's really not apparent that it's treating anything. So go going back to basics, I think, makes the most sense, and avoiding using those topical antifungals and white creams, which might sting or burn or further irritate. So let's talk about folliculitis, bacterial infection. So these are clearly well-formed pustules on the diaper area, a um, little bit of a bullous um, impetigo appearance, like kind of maybe trending towards that way. But staph and strep are super common, so they're super common um, contaminants in the diaper area too, so watch for signs of that and take your cultures, because you might be surprised sometimes it is strep. Um, this is area is ripe for this kind of um, infection because it's moist and occluded. And I think that daily bathing, bland emollients, and preventive measures are also really helpful to prevent bacterial superinfection in the diaper area. Just a word about mupirocin. Topical mupirocin ointment is really effective um, in treating you know, an eruption like this. This is a little bit more widespread, but if it was a little um, less prominent, that could be effective. Um, just a note that we are seeing more mupirocin resistance emerging across the country, so just to be cautious about using it and be aware if something is not responding. Okay, psoriasis, another common diaper area eruption. And this is actually one of the times where you see psoriasis presenting, especially in infancy and toddler years, the diaper is a very common place where you'll see it the first. And so the, its early onset makes it really difficult to distinguish sometimes from atopic derm and irritant derm and um, seborrheic derm. 
So you might want to go a little further, ask about family history, look for nail findings. Facial involvement is also very common in the toddler years with psoriasis, so another clue to the diagnosis. But you can tell that this looks a little bit different from the other um, eruptions. There are very well-demarcated, slightly scaly papules and plaques. You might argue that these are little satellite um, papules, and you might be thinking about candida here, but the lack of intertriginous, you know, inguinal um, involvement or maceration kind of goes against it. So I would favor psoriasis for this diaper eruption. In children who are presenting with psoriasis, Group A strep is a known exacerbant, so you really want to be looking for that, looking at the perianal area, making sure that they don't have perianal strep as well. And then in this case, I really find that the topical calcineurin inhibitors are very, very helpful. So tacrolimus ointment would be really helpful in reducing inflammation here, safe to use in the groin for longer periods of time. Um, and then again, the irritant dermatitis is probably what's leading to kebnerization here. So skin barrier repair, lots of emollients, frequent diaper changes, all good. And so again, this is an example of psoriasis, and this one's hard to miss. You can see these well-demarcated scaly plaques. Sometimes the scale will not be present, especially in the inguinal area. So if it's well-demarcated and you're thinking about it, just make sure it's on your differential. It's not uncommon for us to see this presenting in the diaper area. A little bit about candida. Um, Dr. Treat and I were just talking about how we look for candida and we rarely find it. So I feel like in my practice, you know, staph or strep superinfection of the diaper area is actually a little, like, much more common that I see, and I do take a lot of cultures, so I'm not finding candida a lot, but if you did find it, you would expect it to look like this. Beefy red, satellite pustules, and often coexisting with thrush um, or other, um, other findings. So check for thrush if you, if you see what you think is a candidal diaper dermatitis. So I would definitely take um, a culture here. Because candida colonizes the lower GI tract in infants, it would be a normal finding. But when it overgrows and causes the inflammatory response, that's when it can be a problem. Um, I do think that it is less common than previous with the advent of all of our super um, diaper technology that's out there. All right. This nine-month-old presents with these eroded plaques in the diaper area and the following skin findings. What are you thinking here? What's your diagnosis? Okay, great. Most of you got this. This is an example of acrodermatitis enteropathica, which is due to zinc deficiency or nutritional deficiency, essentially due to zinc deficiency, and it results due to an error in metabolism and zinc absorption and mutations in that gene, SLC39A, um, a, a zinc transporter have been implicated. And this typically presents when the infants are, are weaning from breast milk and switching over to cow's milk or in formula-fed infants at around like eight weeks of age um, when their maternal zinc kind of is, is developing its nadir. So perioral and diaper area are the most commonly affected, and you see these really well-demarcated, almost shiny, um, shellac-like plaques around the mouth in the diaper area, and failure to thrive or lack of, lack of weight gain and alopecia can also be present. 
Um, you can also see acrodermatitis enteropathica in a variety of settings where nutritional deficiencies are common. Um, so CF, Crohn's, those on TPN. And so you should be checking zinc levels on those patients. Um, those are usually less than 50 micrograms per deciliter is very predictive. Um, of acrodermatitis enteropathica or the risk for developing it. And you can supplement with zinc sulfate about three to 10 um, milligrams per kilogram. It may cause a little bit of GI upset, but it's generally effective. Okay, last case here. So this is another diaper eruption, different than the others. Scalp. So this six month presents with erosions and erythema in the inguinal crease for about eight weeks with plaques on the scalp. I'll just show you the diaper again. What's your diagnosis? I expect you all to get this. Right, so I gave a lot of clues, but this is a presentation of Langerhans cell histiocytosis. So LCH um, and our knowledge of what's going on with LCH has really improved dramatically over the last five years. We know a lot more than we did. And we now know that it's more of an inflammatory myeloid, myeloid neoplasm due to mutations along the MAP kinase pathway, specifically BRAF um, is involved with this. And LCH is now characterized by the extent of involvement, so single system versus multi-system, and the presence of high-risk organ involvement can kind of stratify our patients. And it can present in the neonatal period, often with these types of cutaneous lesions. So kind of like a little sebderm that's not going away, that's really persistent. You might see petechiae or purpuric papules, erosions, crusting. It really is the great mimicker. And there are many reports in the literature actually of scabies um, mimicking LCH and the LCH being misdiagnosed. And that's kind of why through those uh, distractors in. But this is the, the previous slides of the diaper and scalp can be, can be a presentation, but these little crusted papules is another presentation. And I think it's worth mentioning that this type of Langerhans cell histiocytosis used to be called the congenital self-healing type. Um, and we really know that that's not really true any longer. You know, all of these children need to be followed. Um, even though the eruption goes away, they still need long-term follow-up. Um, because multi-system disease is associated with, with, more, with LCH more often than we previously knew. So most patients presenting to us have systemic involvement. It's just that the skin might be presenting first. And so skin-limited, true skin-limited LCH is pretty rare. Um, most of the children will go on to develop um, multi-system disease. And so all of these infants need to be periodically uh, monitored with, your, with our hematology oncology colleagues. And this is the one not to miss. Okay, let's go back to our ARS. And I'll just have you see how you're doing here. I know you're all paying such great attention, so it's gonna be 100%. Great, 86%. So this is um, diaper psoriasis. Okay. Number two. Great. 
and three. This one day old with these kind of hyperpigmented macules and papules and pustules. Great. Most of you got that. So pustular melanosis is the correct answer. Okay. And this eight-week-old. Eighty-six percent. This is excellent. So this is scabies. Okay, last one. What's the most likely neurologic complication? Almost 100%, so 92, that's correct. Seizure disorder, this is an example of incontinentia pigmenti. Okay, so thanks, and I'm happy to take any questions now or later. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? <laughs> Parents are increasingly desiring homemade natural moisturizers. Are there any types of oil mixtures that you recommend? Um, you know, I don't really recommend m any mixtures in particular, but I'm not against coconut oil. I do think that it has some nice moisturization as well as antimicrobial properties. I would say the same thing about sunflower oil. There are some oils that have been actually studied, and it does seem that sunflower or safflower oil seems to do a little bit better in protecting the skin barrier than things like olive oil, and it probably has to do with the linoleic acid ratios in those oils. Um, so no, I'm not against it. Wouldn't recommend really mixing up your own, but I'm, I think coconut oil is fine um, if patients prefer that. Okay. What is your recipe for compounded precipitated sulfur? You know, I haven't used it in a while, so I don't have a recipe I can give you right now, but I can certainly look it up for you. Do you have it? 10%? Four to 10. I was gonna say 2%, but Jim says four to 10. Three days in a row, so different from, from the uh, permethrin, okay. Okay, this is, a, this is a good question too. So zinc um, oxide do, does have a negative impact on the cloth diapers, like you're not supposed to use it. Um, so I, I agree, I think that you know, petrolatum, aquaphor, the, the ointments would be, would be the best um, for cloth diapering. 
okay, what do you say to a patient that is worried about using petrol um, or like oil-based products? Well, this comes up a lot, and this one I do have um, a really nice answer for. So if you look on the Environmental Working Group, which is a website that rates the safety and or the perceived safety of different chemical compounds that are in a variety of moisturizers and soaps, you will see that um, petrolatum, plain petrolatum, gets one of the highest ratings above Cetaphil, above CeraVe. And that's because there are no chemical preservatives in Vaseline. And so really, it's a thick, hydrophobic compound that is a very large molecule. It won't be absorbed you know, into the stratum corneum or into the bloodstream. Um, really, it's just acting as a barrier. So that's my, my typical answer for, for the safety of petrolatum, which I strongly believe is absolutely safe. How young of a patient is considered safe to use calcineurin inhibitors? Well, I would say that you know the age of two is what's FDA approved um, for the 0.03% ointment, um, but I would say for tacrolimus 0.03% ointment. But I would say that I think it's safe to use it. You know, even in the neonatal period, I don't see a problem using it off-label. Do you use Zepi? Ooh. Is this um, Altabax? Oh, uh, okay, I'm sorry, I don't know what Zepi is, so the answer is no, I don't use it, but I'll definitely be excited to learn more um, about any other topical antibiotics as mepiracin resistance is, is increasing, yeah. I think that's it, thanks everyone. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.